We listen now to the closing verses of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And the passage contains a great deal of proper names, people who we might not know anything about, but who were dearly beloved to Paul who wrote them. So in hearing them, may they become beloved to us as well. Listen now. I commend to you, Paul writes, our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sancria, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you. For she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, who work with me in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom I not only give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my loved Apenetus, who was first was the first convert in Asia for Christ. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard among you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives, who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my relative, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Trophosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and greet his mother, a mother to me also. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And all the churches of Christ greet you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This fall is an important time for Westminster. We're celebrating our 75th anniversary this year, which is going to culminate on November 15th the special worship service and a congregational dinner following the service in Fellowship Hall. As we honor our past, we will be also focusing on plans for the future, specifically in mission and youth and Christian education and young adult ministry. Following a summer sermon series on Christ and culture, which many of you heard, Casey and Patrick and I this fall will be giving sermons that, broadly speaking, are going to emphasize the different aspects of who we are as a congregation and who we are being called to be in the future. And I want to begin this series today with an aspect of the church's life 
that we often do not stress in preaching. That is, the church as a community in which we can find care for our souls in times of need. There is a balm in Gilead, we sing, to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. The relationships we find in the church can, at their best, be balm we need to make the wounded whole. Let us pray. Come Holy Spirit, Heavenly Dove. Come kindle the flame of sacred love in these warm, hopeful, expectant, and sometimes hurting hearts of ours. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. In a church I served long ago, there were two men who had been members of the church for a good number of years, but who did not know each other particularly well. One was a retired small-town banker who, as treasurer of the church, brought his gifts of diplomacy and tact and consensus to decision-making in the church. The other was a retired engineer who worked as hard as anyone in and for the life of that congregation, but who was not one of its most diplomatic members or the best at coming to consensus. One year, the two men found themselves on the same church committee and sparks began to fly between them such that the committee could not really get its business done. For several meetings, the committee was stymied, decisions were not made, and people left the meetings tired and frustrated. But in addition to the church, of which they were both members, but about which they rarely agreed, these two men had something else in common. Many years earlier, many years earlier, each man had lost an adult daughter to an act of violence. One, an unsolved murder in a faraway city. The other, a self-inflicted wound in her own apartment across town. A few days after a particularly tense committee meeting, one of the men said to me concerning the other, I heard that he lost a daughter too. Yes, I said, he has. As the next meeting was breaking up, in which the committee was still stymied, I noticed the man who had asked me about the other man reach out and put his hand on the knee of the man about whom he had asked. I think we have something in common, he said. We need to have coffee. A couple of weeks later, on my way to the office, I stopped in at a diner where I would stop in from time to time, and I saw the two men sitting together across from one another in a booth, leaning forward over their cups of Folgers. This was before Starbucks. <laughs> Straining 
to hear one another over the din of diner dishes. Every time that I would go to that diner on my way to work, on that day of the week, I would see the two men sitting across from their cup of coffee. At subsequent committee meetings, the tension between the two seemed to have decided, though they never agreed with one another. I share this story with you because from my earliest days in the Presbyterian Church, as intellectually and educationally oriented as we are, and as private and reserved as we tend to be, I have witnessed and experienced strong bonds of friendship develop between people who may have nothing more in common other than the bulletin they take on Sunday morning. I have seen such relationships become a source of comfort, strength, encouragement, inspiration, hope, wisdom, and sometimes sheer joy. I first sensed this as a child in the small Presbyterian in a small Presbyterian church in Arkansas in an economically depressed part of town what we used to call the other side of the tracks a church in which my grandmother served most of her adult life as one of three elders who kept the doors of the church open much longer than the church had the resources to remain open I have seen it time and time again where individuals in a congregation reach out to other individuals as the one man did to the other. Where groups in the church, choirs and circles and church school classes and deacons and softball teams and kitchen cleanup committees reach out and seek to help one another. Find jobs. Deal with divorce. Arrange child care. Sort out legal issues. Get transportation to medical appointments. Pray. Or simply listen. I know we've got a big crowd today, but on the way in, a visitor that I recognized who used to bring his mother here in a wheelchair three or four times a year walked through the door and I said, did, did you bring your mother? And he said, she passed away a year ago today. And he's here in this community to remember, to honor. Somebody else came up and asked if we could pray today for Wakefield High and that community in Arlington and the loss of another high school student. That's how the church functions as a community in small ways. I have seen people discover for the first time in their lives to their pleasant surprise 
that if they themselves are going through a time of loss or a time of trial, the church they attend would like to respond to their need because that is what ministers and churches do. And I've been equally privileged, though saddened, to encounter among members of churches I have served people who know what it's like to receive the care of the community or the pastor and yet who are missing that care in the community in which they worship or are going through something that the church has missed, sometimes despite their best efforts to communicate their need and to have a connection. When I am aware that as a pastor I have missed someone's need or as a church we have missed something, I consider it a personal challenge to try to help the member receive the care even if belated or find the connection that provides the balm in Gilead. In this context, I want to ask, I want us to ask of ourselves, what kind of community of care can Westminster Church be in Alexandria, Virginia, for the rest of 2015 and beyond? To begin to answer this, I've selected one of the most seemingly mundane and cursory passages in the Bible because I wanted Patrick to spend all week working on the pronunciations, which he did. And he's had to do it twice because we had early service today. It's a passage in which the Apostle Paul closes his dense 16-chapter theological treatise called the Letter to the Romans with a chapter of farewells, of goodbyes. It is the longest list or passage of farewells in the New Testament. In this passage, Paul says farewell to 29 individuals, 27 of whom were named, and 25 of whom have pronounceable names. Once you learn them, have unpronounceable names. When we pay attention to the names in the passage, they actually reveal characteristics of that congregation, of that community of faith in Rome, that a more cursory reading would, not, would lead us to overlook. For example, in an era in which women typically assumed less leadership in church and society than in our time, one-third of the leaders of the church to whom Paul says farewell are women. The leadership roles that women assume based on this letter include deacon, fellow worker in Christ Jesus, saint, and one prominent among the apostles. Among the names Paul mentions are Jewish names, Greek names, and Latin names, indicating that this earliest of Christian communities was neither ethnically nor sociologically homogenous. The names include slaves, freed persons, and even a few who are wealthy members of the noble class, indicating that in this congregation there is a mix of economic, legal, and social backgrounds as well. For example, Phoebe is a wealthy female whom Paul identifies as a benefactor of the church, Prisca and Aquila are fellow workers whom Paul says risked their lives for him. Andronicus and Junius 
were imprisoned with Paul, presumably for activities of their faith, which were considered a threat to the Roman state. This list is good evidence that there is a unity around faith in Christ that transcends but does not obliterate the diversity among members on matters of ethnic identity and class and economic status. As Paul had earlier written to the Galatians, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female for we are all one in Christ Jesus. As I grew older, I learned that not only was my grandmother an elder in her congregation, and I learned what that was, but also that she was among the first women in the state of Arkansas elected to that office once the denomination opened the office of elder to women. And later as an adult, I came to realize that she, a seamstress, married to a railroad worker, neither of whom we think graduated from high school, served on the session with three people, two of the, the other two were men, one of whom was the superintendent of the schools in that community and had a doctorate in education. The close-knit bonds of faith and care experienced in the church cut across lines of race, gender, class, educational level. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. A second aspect of this passage is the way that Paul actually closes this farewell. After mentioning all 27 names, he says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now, a holy kiss is part of early Christian worship. It is mentioned four times in the letters of the New Testament, three by Paul. While gestures and rituals change over the course of church history to where a holy kiss, or for that matter, a kiss of any kind, might be considered out of place in our sanctuary. We won't be asking you to do that. We are reserved and quiet. But the instinct behind the holy kiss is timeless. It is care for one another in the community. Such care, however it is expressed, is an act of holiness. It is an act of Christian witness. And it is a place in which we both meet Christ and serve Christ. Such care, such holiness can occur in the church. Whether we are washing dishes together in the church kitchen and talking about our kids, our jobs, our homework. Whether we're visiting someone in the hospital and placing flowers on the windowsill. Whether, sitting, whether we are sitting with someone over several years and listening to their intractable grief. 
were with them in their inscrutable illness. Caring for one another is the balm in Gilead that makes the wounded whole. In terms of practicality for us as members and visitors to Westminster, let me suggest three brief things. First, we have, we have a lot of new members and a lot of people who join our church are joining for the first time as an adult in the life of a congregation. A lot of our new members are coming back to church after, after 10 or 15 years of absence and some have never been in a church before. What I want you to know, and you may not know this, I think some people don't know this, is that you can call any one of the pastors any time when you are going through something for which you need to talk to a pastor, that leads you to need to talk to a pastor, and, and you determine if you have that need. One of us is always on call. Each of us does pastoral care for people of all ages. You get to pick the one you like. <laughs> but you can do it. In addition, we have a pastoral care staff of Eileen Jenks and Jill, Jill Yule, who's a volunteer, and our support staff of, of Tara Kane who form a part of our church's response. And in addition, we have laypersons who serve on the board of deacons, on the member response team, and on the Compassion Guild to shepherd you through whatever it has led you to turn to the church. Second, if you have been through an experience that you are willing to share with others who are going through a similar experience, let us know. Without breaking any confidences, we can offer you to people in the congregation who are going through currently what you have been through. You might be surprised at the number of people in our congregation who offer to talk with others. And the number of times we are able to connect people concerning cancer or mental illness or addiction, or the loss of a job, or any number of things that we face. You can add your name to the list of those who give or to those who receive. And third, if we have missed reaching out to you in a time of need, or if our reaching out has been inadequate or hasn't really hit the mark, please let us know. We are human beings. We can and do miss things. But when we miss something, in addition to responding to the need, we want to see if the process that we have in place is flawed or has holes or gaps. We know we cannot necessarily provide an answer for all human situations, but we can at least consider what we can do better and be honest about what we can and cannot do. We now have over a thousand members, 
plus over 250 children and pre-confirmation youth. And there are always another 100 or so visitors or friends of Westminster that we're shepherding. I continue to be amazed at how many of you truly reach out to one another and become significant friends in faith and in life. It is a beautiful sight to see when it happens. I want to make sure that everyone who needs the balm in Gilead finds it in the way they need it through this congregation. Amen.